hear PGA and LPGA legends, pros, top instructors and media members from around the country sharing their stories, insights and playing lessons every week right here on Next on the Tee. Take it away, Chris. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Mr. Ben Wright. Like I mentioned a moment ago, he's a treasure to me and to the game of golf. No one over the history of this show has come to mean more to me, more to me than Mr. Wright has. His kindness and generosity have go beyond words. In my mind, he's the best podcaster in golf history for the wonderful way that he has framed up golf for all of us on TV, making the events he was a part of infinitely more enjoyable to watch. He is also one of the great storytellers of all time, and you'll understand why I say that even more if you go pick up his book, Good Bounces and Bad Lies, which you can find on Amazon.com. And one of the things that I have posted over the last few years on our website, typically in January, I've listed five things that I'm wishing for out of the golf year. And every year on my list is Ben Wright broadcasting one more Masters. You're going to see it again again, uh, in January of 2019 right there at the top of my list. But I'm honored he is with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mr. Wright. Thank you for coming back on the show. It's my uh, extreme pleasure, Chris. Uh, I, I, you know, I get a, a real kick out of being with you. And uh, I, I'm particularly pleased and flattered that, you know, I'm an old man now. In fact, I'm just about a month from my 86th birthday, believe it or not. And, and you know, I've been out of TV for a, well, almost 20 years. And thankfully, lovely people like you keep calling. <laughs> so I get to talk about the game that I adore. Well, Mr. Ray, you know, the last time that uh, we got to spend some time with you was just prior to the Masters. So catch us up. What's been going on with you so far this summer? Well, we've had a, a wonderful summer. My wife, Helen, and I decided to come up to Southampton, uh, Long Island, where she has a condo, because we were invited to be uh, guests of the United States Golf Association for the Open Championship at Shinnecock Hills, which is, in my opinion, the best golf course in the whole of the United States. And that's saying a tremendous amount. And I played a lot of golf there, Chris, in years gone by with my then colleague, Jack Whitaker at CBS, who was a member there. And I absolutely adored that golf course. Now, of course, I've got to say that the course I played was a very great deal different uh, from that that was played at the Open. But we had a wonderful time. And uh, they, they look after. I'm. I have a handicap problem uh, in in my back. Um, I had a serious operation, and uh, they the USGA could not have looked after me as a handicapped person. It was quite extraordinary how beautifully they looked after people like myself, including giving us an electric scooter to, to, to zoom around the golf course, which is a lot of fun, but rather scary because 
you know, people don't look where they're going. And uh, it was difficult. It was almost dangerous to have me at the wheel. (laughs) (laughs) But anyhow, we're having a wonderful time up on Long Island, which is probably the most expensive place I've ever been in America. But, uh, you know, as as they say, you can't take it with you. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so to that end, Mr. Wright, give us your thoughts. What, what, what did you think about what we saw there at Shinnecock Hills between the, the layout of the course, the U.S. Open, and how it all played out? Well, you know, um, obviously the USGA lost it again on the Saturday afternoon and caused uh, Phil Mickelson to have a an incredibly stupid rush of blood. Uh, you know, there's no really any good reason for that. He should have been disqualified, of course, but they're not going to affect the gate by uh, disqualifying him because too many people love him and a hell of a lot of them are from New York State. It's uh, extraordinary the love affair that there is between uh, the people here and Phil Mickelson. But um, going back to the golf, I can't say enough about Brooks Kepka because when he won there in Hill's Last year, I thought, well, he can win on a golf course where the fairways are 50, 60 yards wide, which made it a totally unsuitable venue, in my humble opinion. Uh, See, but he proved at Shinnecock that, that he can do it on a really hard golf course with no let up holes at all. And I, I, can't give the guy enough credit for that. Uh, also, of course, I was very excited about the English boy, Tommy Fleetwood, with his last round of 63, which was only one more than uh, would have got him into a playoff and created a, a record. But um, I wish he'd get his hair cut, mind you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's an old fogey for you, but um, <laughs> it was a wonderful championship. Uh, apart from Saturday afternoon, when the conditions became totally out of hand, really. I mean, when you get the best players in the world on TV uh, putting off greens, it, it's not really kosher, and. Uh, I was I was very disappointed in that, and I I'll tell you, Chris, what upsets me is that it is the seeming antagonism between the USGA and the best professionals in the world. They are hell bent, the USGA are, on humiliating the best players, whereas at the British Open uh, at Carnoustie, which was Obviously, the hardest golf course on the uh, Open Championship rotor. The, the the attitude of the Royal and Ancient, which is really rather marvelous, because you would expect them to be stuffy as can be, 
but they just say, "We there it is, go, go play, and if you shoot 59, so be it. But this antagonism uh, against the pros, I find unseemly, to put, to put it mildly. But, I, 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 you know, that sounds uh, ungracious since I was hosted so generously by the USGA. But I do wish they could back off a bit and let the players go at it and score what they like, you know. Yeah, and that's that's exactly one of the points that I really wanted to expound on with you because I feel like the USGA has it backwards. It feels like they are so bent on even par being the winning score that they are doing things to the golf course to try to make it so. And to your earlier point, you know, the RNA and and the you know the PGA of America seem to be like the RNA to me. The, the weather is going to dictate how this plays out, right? The, the golf courses are gettable if it's, if it's beautiful outside, but when the wind starts to blow and it starts to rain and all those sorts of things, then the, the golf course bites back. And then PGA of America, it seems like, you know, hey, if you shoot par, you shoot 20 under like Jason Day did a couple of years ago, so be it. You, you got the golf course and the golf course didn't get you. But the, but the USGA is backwards. It's like they're trying to force even par to be the winning score. I just think they've got it wrong. I agree with you. I, you make you make the point much more succinctly than I did. Um, it, it is a shame, but it's the it's this antagonism. Of course, the players, you know, have got to to dislike the USGA, and that's very sad. You know, there shouldn't be that. Uh, it should be a mutual respect. And uh, I really, I, I really find it tiresome. But um, you know, it's easy for me to say because uh, I've been around long enough to see how they made a nonsense of the Open. I mean, at 2004 at Shinnecock, it became virtually unplayable. I mean, it was totally ridiculous, and uh, you know, sprinkling. While play was on was totally unfair because they were doing it for some players and not for others. And, uh, you know, I wish they just set up the golf course hard as they want it, put the pins in some tough places on at least some of the holes and let them fly. You know, just don't, as you say, try and make, uh, even par the the winning score. It's ridiculous because you're not going to do that nowadays. I mean, these guys are so good; they're going to beat you, whatever you do. And uh, but there's no need to make them look stupid. And some of those players looked, frankly, stupid. And I won't name anybody because I I lost count of guys putting off greens and so on. It was so sad, really. Uh, Anyhow, enough. Enough already. (laughs) (laughs) So looking ahead to this weekend's PGA Championship at Belle Reve Country Club, where Gary Player won the 65 U.S. Open, and that was 
his tournament to complete the career Grand Slam back when he was 29 years of age. And, and I know you didn't start with CBS Sports until the early 70s, but you and Mr. Player are, are really good friends. Do you remember that open and him completing the career Grand Slam? Yes, I do, Chris. Um, because obviously it was the first time, because of Ken Venturi almost dying at Congressional in the Open of 1964, it was the first time they had a single round on the final Sunday, which was a very good move in the correct direction and admirable by the USGA. But it ended in an 18-hole playoff with uh, uh, Gary against a great friend of mine, Kel Nagel of Australia, uh, who's no longer with us and was one of the most lovely people uh, you could ever wish to meet. He served all through World War II as a foot soldier and was just a down-to-earth lovely man. And I remember him telling me years later that um, Gary was a little fortunate in that he got some fortuitous bounces off spectators in, in the playoff. There were, there were two particular instances where he hooked tee shots, uh, apparently into real no man's land, and uh, they hit, uh, both of them hit a spectator in the back and bounced clear. So, uh, you know, it, it, it was, I think those 18 hole playoffs are well done away with. Um, they're very boring. And um, that was very boring, too, I might add. Uh, uh, but there we are. Um, I was also, obviously, uh, broadcasting when Nick Price won the PGA at Belle Reve in. Uh, 1992. And, um, you know, something, it's a kind of golf course, Chris, that I don't really remember a lot about. It's a lovely parkland layout with enormous greens and enormous bunkers. But there's, there's just something about it that just uh, didn't click with me. Uh, of course, I'm I'm crazy about Lynx Golf and, and Shinnecock Hills, although it isn't truly Lynx Golf, is as near as makes no difference. But, you know, I, I question uh, playing on Parkland inland courses, the, the major championships. Uh, I, you know, there, there obviously there's some very good ones coming up in the future. Beth Page Black next year, Harding Park, the Ocean Course at Kilwar Island, and places like Oak Hill in uh, Rochester, New York. Uh, uh, you know, really good, great, great tests of golf. But I, I think just Belle Reeve is very beautiful, no question about it. But it's not exactly what you'd call memorable, but it's a hard hard golf course and um you know it's a true true test there's no question about it and going back to that 
92 championship. Nick Price won it, six under par, 278. But that was, you know, a long time ago, especially when you think about it in terms of how advanced golf equipment and golf technology and the golf ball have come since, since that tournament. So six under par. Do you think we'll see something close to that again, or do you think we've made so, such big strides since then we might be looking at a champion that's somewhere, you know, double digits and above? Um, I would be surprised, Chris, if it isn't double figures under par uh, because of the improved equipment. But the, it's, the players have improved with their fitness. I mean, some of them are real gym rats, notably Rory uh, McElroy. And, um, uh, you know, they're just so... It, it, you know, in my early days, Chris, I, w- I would accept what other sportsmen would say, that golfers were not athletes. And that, that was almost true. It was a little hard, but there were, there were a lot of bellies out there, a lot of beer bellies. And, uh, <laughs> and it was a boozy game, really. But, um, you know, now, uh, gosh, what a fit-looking bunch of people they are. Mr. Wright, a couple of more before we let you go. And going back to the time after the Open Championship, I was a little disappointed in the hours afterwards and the headlines on outlets like ESPN because they were all about Tiger Woods. Nary a word on their main headlines on ESPN.com about Francesco Molinari having actually won the event. It was all different things about Tiger. And we seem to be, you know, you know, everything seems to be Tiger crazy, Tiger mania everywhere. Was it that way back in the day? Was that when, when Mr. Hogan was at his, at his peak or when Arnold Palmer was, you know, at the peak of his popularity and, and his prime or, or Jack Nicklaus? Was it all about them or is it different now that we are so fixated on Tiger Woods? Uh, I think it's the, it's the most extraordinary thing. Uh, it was never like that. In Palmer's day, of course, he was revered, but it was the big three. Uh, in Hogan's day, uh, there was huge respect for the gentleman, but uh, particularly from the British public. But, you know, nothing like the hysteria there is a- around Tiger today. And, and you know, it, 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 I, I find it a little bit, upsetting, actually, because Francesco Molinari has been a a really great player in a quiet way for a long time, and he's suddenly come good this year, and and, uh, I think he got very little credit. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that American television uh, didn't give him a fair shake at all. And sticking with Tiger just a little bit, Mr. Wright, we, you know, we've got the, the Tiger versus Phil winner-take-all match sort of looming out there that they're, that they're trying to finalize. It sort of feels a little to me like the old shell matches just for a whole lot more money. The, were those things that, did, did people like watching those back in the day? Was that something you enjoyed broadcasting and, and reporting on, or is that something that, that went for went by the wayside for a reason? 
Well, you know, when in my young days, uh, Chris, there wasn't the money available, obviously. I remember vividly uh, lunching with Christy O'Connor, the great old Irish player, before he went out and won the first four-figure sum in British golf history. And that was uh, 1955, if memory serves me correctly. And when you think of the millions tossed around today, it is very different. And uh, I find, you know, it, I, I, I will ri- willingly admit that Tiger is one of the all-time great players. But he has got a lot to prove right now, uh, you know, that he's back to his best. Uh, he really had a, a wonderful chance at Carnoustie, and I think rather predictably, uh, you know, it sort of, uh, it, I wouldn't say he choked, but, uh, the enormity of it, I think, got to him. Uh, but um, I, I really think there's a lot too much, uh, a lot too much of Tiger when he's not in contention. I I get really ticked off when he's 12 or 15 shots out of the lead, and we get an overdose of Tiger. Uh, at you know at the expense. Of the guys who were winning the tournament, for goodness sake. Yes. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, I, I feel the same way. I feel like they're making him the story when he's not the story. The guy who's actually winning is the story, but it just gets overshadowed by Tiger. And, and to that end, Mr. Wright, and I know, again, what a, a, a big fan you were of Ben Hogan. Right now, you know, if, if Tiger were to win, this PGA championship, the U S media would be like, it's the greatest comeback in the history of golf, forgetting what Mr. Hogan came back from forgetting what he achieved after the accident and the things that he went through to get back to the top of the game. Do you mind touching on that briefly, please? Well, you know, I, I was, I was horrified that everybody saying that Tiger made the, the greatest comeback uh, in golf history from from uh, injury. And uh, I, I, to me, Hogan is head and shoulders above anybody that ever came back and did what he did. And when he went to Carnoustie, having said that he was going to win and would never return, it all, you know, people tend to forget he'd already won the Masters and the U.S. Open that year before he even got to Carnoustie. And it was only four years since he was nearly killed in that terrible accident when he went head on in, a, in his car with his wife and, and, and a coach. And, and Hogan flung himself across to cover up his wife to save her from injury or tried to, and it was he that bore the brunt of the uh, of the real crash. And uh, you know that, to my mind, four years later, to win the three majors in which he competed because he couldn't compete in 
United States PGA because it was the following week, I believe, after the British. I mean, that, to my mind, is the greatest comeback in the history of the game. Couldn't agree more. Mr. Wright, tonight, like every other time you've joined me on the show, it has been such a huge privilege to get to spend some more time with you. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back on the show, and I, I hope we get the honor of having you back on the again, uh, back on the show again soon. Just ask me, Chris. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, you very so much. much, Mr. Wright. All the best to you and your family. We look forward to that time of catching up with you again real soon. Thank you very much, Chris. That is the great Ben Wright, and uh, like I say, folks, Nothing gets me more excited and more emotional about a segment than uh, getting to spend more time uh, with Ben Wright. He's, uh, he's a golf treasure, and he has meant a great deal to me over the course of the years of this show, and uh, I sure hope we get the opportunity to catch up with him again sometime in the fall.